1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC, from breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look. The Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Do we start with the continuing bombshell reports here on Chinese state interference in Canadian elections? This latest report by Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper about an intelligence warning that was given to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau before the 2019 election, that one of his own Liberal Party candidates was part of a Chinese state interference program in Canada. I got Sam Cooper standing by to discuss. Let's first have a listen to Trudeau here reacting to this. And you'll hear him say, like, he, Trudeau keeps saying, we, look, look, we know this was going on. And he keeps saying it didn't work. And, and he also takes a shot at the, his critics here, Have a listen to this. Here's Trudeau.
2: Foreign countries are trying to undermine people's confidence in our democracies and destabilize those democracies. And when we lean in on partisanship around this... We're actually helping them in doing their work of sowing confusion and mistrust.
1: Okay, really? He, he really thinks that there there's no area for uh, criticism here? I don't, don't agree with that. Let's check in with Sam Cooper now, national investigative reporter for Global News. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Sam, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Sam, this is a, an incredible a story that you've broken here. Let, let's talk about what you, what you found out and what the CSIS warnings, what did CSIS tell the Prime Minister here?
3: We learned uh, from my sources with awareness of the intelligence brief. Uh, The sources say it took place in late September 2019. This is just weeks before uh, the 2019 federal election. And the information is this uh, urgent classified brief was for senior Liberal Party officials. And uh, the, the information is they were warned that Mr. Han Don, who was uh, already uh, the nominee for Don Valley North in Toronto, was alleged to to be a a state actor in Chinese interference networks. Extremely serious allegation. The second part is, according to sources with knowledge of this warning brief, uh, Mr. Don was uh, closely associated to Michael Chen, a former Ontario liberal, Liberal Minister who was also allegedly a top target in investigations into interference networks. So the information is this information was provided uh, to the liberal party uh, because thesis believed there was such a threat here. If this candidate uh, runs and wins, then uh, the, uh, the government would have an alleged state actor of China as a sitting MP. And so uh, there's a lot in the story, but uh, in brief, uh, My sourcing said that uh, the Liberal Party uh, did not acknowledge this warning, did not replace the candidate. Uh, Mr. Don won, and uh, he is, according to the CSIS intelligence sourcing that I have, uh, alleged to be one of at least 11 Toronto-area federal candidates in 2019 that were part of or supported by Chinese interference networks. And Mr. Don, again, the sourcing we're pointing specifically to him in this case, is alleged to be a witting affiliate in this activity. Now, Michael, I I have to stress, Mr. Don, uh, I I provided uh, a number of these allegations from our sourcing and documents, and he has very strongly denied being involved in this activity, as has Michael Chan, who is now... uh, The York Region Deputy Mayor, Mr. Chan, strongly denies being involved in this Chinese interference activity.
1: Okay, yeah, so their their denials are certainly on the record here, but my goodness, what a bombshell story this is. I mean, this almost, it almost, bottom line is, you know, there could be like a Chinese spy in the Liberal Caucus. Is that what this boils down to, potentially?
3: I think that it, that would be a fair characterization of the the the, the fears and the concerns yeah. of Canadian intelligence, who goes to the Liberal Party of Canada with a warning that uh, this candidate is believed to be involved in foreign threat activity. Michael, I will add that uh, our story uh, sourced documents in which it said that uh, a former Ontario. A couple of former Ontario MPPs uh, were said to have worked to convince a, liber- uh, that is a federal uh, MP not to travel to Taiwan. Uh, this, is, this would be the type of activity that China is very interested in blocking any engagement with Taiwanese officials. Because, as you know, Mike, China uh, believes that uh, Taiwan's a renegade province. So my sourcing said that Michael Chan... And hand on were the two Ontario MPPs in question that were alleged to have persuaded a federal uh, member not to travel to Taiwan. It's this type of activity that the sources would point towards as concerns that Canadian politicians, in this case, were, uh, were pointing to the allegations about Mr. Don, are involved in Chinese foreign interference in Canada.
1: Speaking to Global News reporter Sam Cooper, Sam, I've listened very closely to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's responses to these continuing revelations and stories. And what I hear him say is that, well, we know there was uh, Chinese interference going on. It didn't work. It didn't impact the outcome of the election. And he also seems to be resistant to any kind of public inquiry into what's what has happened here and there are growing calls for that I'd, i haven't heard him deny this though right like the government is not denying your reporting that uh, trudeau senior senior advisors and officials received this briefing they haven't they have not denied that correct
3: well in my questioning uh, I, I asked the prime minister's office to confirm or deny whether this brief had occurred as my thesis sourcing says it it has uh, they did not respond uh To my my follow-up questioning and uh, refuse to acknowledge the brief took place, Uh, we haven't yet heard uh, whether Prime Minister Trudeau will say that he wasn't aware of this information. But uh, the the sourcing information is is very solidly asserting that senior Liberal Party officials with security clearances were briefed of this uh, classified information uh, in late September 2019.
1: Okay, where are we at now with the calls for more investigation into this? Because we're now hearing a growing chorus of critics and opposition members calling for a public inquiry into this. Conservatives are calling for that. I I now see federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has issued a statement this morning, also calling for a public inquiry. What's the government's response on that, Sam?
3: Uh, we, we could hear from Prime Minister Trudeau today on whether some sort of uh, investigation or inquiry will be uh, supported by uh, the Liberal Party of Canada. So that's still an open question. But, Michael, you're right. I, I, in the past few days, we have seen a growing list of uh, national security experts, including former CSIS director, Dick Fadden, uh, we, uh, interviewed him on Sunday. He said he can't see any reasonable argument, not for a public inquiry to go forward. And he cited the reasons that, uh, a committee hearing in parliament would just be simply too partisan. And at this point I should add, Mike, uh, uh, this is not just the Liberal Party of Canada. We have uh, reported that my sourcing is that it was both Liberals and Conservatives allegedly involved in these candidates targeted in 2019. And uh, uh, my reporting has also pointed to documents that this is uh, all parties in Canada. And, uh, Michael, this is across Canada. This isn't just a Toronto issue. All levels of government, all major parties are targeted for this type of interference mostly by China and Canada, but other countries certainly involved in uh, as well. It's a broad threat.
1: Sam, thank you for coming on today to talk about this. We continue to follow it closely. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Okay. We continue to talk about the bombshell reports that are emerging here on CSIS, a warning the Justin Trudeau government about potential interference by Chinese uh, state uh, pr- interference programs in our country before the last two elections. So these are some of the more bombshell reports that we've heard here in recent days. This last one from Global News about a Liberal candidate who is now a Liberal MP being part of a Chinese foreign interference network, according to a warning that was given by CSIS to the Prime Minister's staff. This MP has denied that. Got Michael Cooper standing by, Conservative MP. Have a listen to Richard Fadden here first. This is it the former director of CSIS. Okay, so this is the former director of Canada's spy agency. He's calling for a public inquiry into this now. Have a listen.
4: It should be given a limited mandate so that they report, you know, before, well before the next election. They should be an, an inquiry under the Inquiries Act so that they can call subpoena people and documents if need be. Uh, and I can't see any compelling reason not to do it in the public interest, except some partisan considerations.
1: Checking in with Michael Cooper, now Michael's Conservative MP, St. Albert Edmonton. Very pleased to welcome him. Michael, thank you for coming on. Good morning. Thanks for doing it. First of all, can I get your reaction to these latest reports?
5: They're very, very disturbing and concerning that senior Trudeau staff were warned by CSIS that a candidate who is now a Liberal MP... Uh, was compromised by Beijing, that the Toronto consulate had assisted him in winning his liberal nomination and had advised the senior Trudeau staff that his nomination should be rescinded. Uh, Instead of heeding the advice of CSIS, they completely ignored that advice, according to the Global News Report. And what's even more serious, as bad as that is is, according to the Global News report, that candidate, now an MP, was informed by a liberal organizer that he was being cracked by CSIS. This meeting was a classified meeting, and classified information was then leaked to this liberal candidate, who may be compromised by Beijing. So it's okay. scandalous. It's scandalous, okay. and it may be criminal.
1: OK, of, of course, it's important to stress that this particular MP, Han Don, liberal MP, has denied this. He says it's not true. So it's important to put that out there. I have, I have not heard a denial from the prime minister's office, though, that they had, they actually did receive this warning from CSIS. Michael, where does this go from here now? We're, we're hearing these, these uh, continuing calls now for a public inquiry. Where do you stand on that?
5: Well, what I'm focused on is uh, m- m- ensuring that we get answers. And right now, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, of which I'm a member, is undertaking a study on this interference. And I put forward a motion at the committee last week uh, that the government produce all relevant documents and that relevant ministers and PMO staff, including the Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, uh, appear before the committee to answer questions. My motion was gutted by the Liberals with their coalition partner, uh, the NDP. Given the very disturbing report uh, on Friday from Global News about PMO officials being briefed, or senior Trudeau staff being briefed uh, about a a candidate who may be compromised by by Beijing and then who apparently then turned a blind eye, uh, speaks to the need for Katie Telford, the chief of staff, to come before our committee. And it's why when our committee meets later this week, I will be bringing forward that motion. We need to hear from Katie Telford. We need to hear from the PMO. They can no longer run and hide from the scandal. They have a lot to answer for.
1: And Michael, I just have one minute left here. We heard from NDP Leader Jagmeet Singh this morning calling for a public inquiry. You mentioned that on your committee, you've got NDP members of this committee. If they want, if they're calling now for a public inquiry, is there any reason why they would object to these officials being brought in front of your committee and maybe vote with you to bring them bring them forward?
5: Well, th- what we've seen from the NDP <coughs> is the coalition at work. Uh, the NDP uh, not uh, joining the Liberals in blocking efforts to bring about. Uh, transparency. So I would hope that in the face of the very, very serious new allegations about senior PMO staff, uh, the NDP will uh, join us, uh, along with the Bloc Québécois, in calling Telford to appear before our committee.
1: Okay, we're following it closely to say the least. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Okay, so let's talk about this surprise performance at the B.C. legislature yesterday by rock star Neil Young. Uh, This happened at a rally against old-growth logging in, in B.C., and we have seen many of these protests and rallies at the legislature and elsewhere in B.C., but this one certainly notable for this event here this is the first live performance by Neil Young in more than three years and this was all hush hush top secret it looked like there were maybe a few hundred people here at this rally and then all of a sudden this happened have a listen
4: it's a it's a precious sacred
1: thing. these old trees and these trees have lasted so long they deserve Canada's respect Okay, it went on from there, so you hear him break into Heart of Gold there. He also performed another song. Let's check in now with the organizers of this rally, how they pulled this off. Torrance Costa on the line. Torrance is an organizer with the Wilderness Committee. Hey, Torrance. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, Torrance. Thank you for coming on. Also on the line is Tegan Hansen. Tegan is an organizer with Stand.Earth, another environmental organization. Tegan, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you to both of you be, for being here. And, Tegan, let me go to you first. How did you guys pull this off? You Neil Young here, he hasn't performed in over three years in public. All of a sudden, there he is on the, the, the steps of the legislature yesterday. How did this happen? Yeah, it
6: was
7: a pretty uh, amazing turn of events. I mean, I think Neil Young and Daryl Hannah were drawn to the rally by the same reason that the thousands of people who came to the rally were um, to stand up in defense of these old growth forests. And we really didn't know he was coming until a couple of days before. And it was um, his request that no one knew. Uh, we were kind of sworn to secrecy. Uh, and our friends at an organization called Canopy helped make that connection. So we're feeling really grateful that he lent his voice with Daryl uh, to this cause.
1: Okay, so he wanted it kept secret, right? Yes, that's correct. Well, why is that? Why did he want it secret?
7: I mean, I can't say for sure. I didn't ask him. Um, I think, you know, the cause was his priority. I You know, like you said, this was the first time he'd performed in years. And, he, you know, my guess would be he probably didn't want to be um, surrounded by a ton of people and, and kind of crowded. And he really, I think from what he said, he really was just there to lend his voice and speak up for the Old Ghost Forest like we all were. And so that was a really touching thing that he kept it uh, quiet and, and was really just there in the spirit of that rally.
1: Yeah, well you certainly did a good job keeping a a lid on it because uh I think if this had got out you probably would have had I don't know 10,000 people down there at the legislature. So, torrence let me let me go to you first like when did you guys become aware that this was this was on?
2: Yeah, uh, as Keegan said a, a couple of days prior. Um I think that you know the the we didn't we didn't ask uh, Neil and and Darryl Hannah Hanna for their rationale of, of why they wanted it kept secret. We just we just respected their request on that. But I would say it probably had to do with a, a number of factors, you know, including a uh, border crossing, uh, the fact that that Neil Young's in his late 70s, and you know the the rally was on was on Saturday, not Sunday. There was a special weather effect in or a special weather statement in effect on Southern Vancouver Island. Um, it's estimated there were like most of the counts for the rally attendance was in the 2,500 range. Uh, but we know that, that hundreds, if not thousands of people from places like further up Island didn't attend because of that snow warning. And I think, I think Neil Young probably figured if something like that happened and he couldn't end up, uh, attending in the end, uh, it would have reflected poorly on him and on us. And so, you know, I think that probably had a lot to do,
1: uh,
2: with his rationale, um, where, where does
1: it was where does far, where where, do, where does he live? Like where do he and Daryl Hannah live? Where did they travel from to get to this?
2: Uh, they told us they took the train up from uh, California, where they live, uh, the LA area, I understand. And they took the train up uh, and uh, and then rented an electric car in Seattle and and came over uh, from there.
1: Okay, so took a train and then rented an electric car. So was he trying to keep his his carbon print low on this trip?
2: I, I believe that's a value of his uh, overall, uh, right? Um, you know, our movement has connections with, with both Neil Young and Daryl Hannah uh, around issues like the, the tar sands. Uh, they've been outspoken on environmental for issues for, for years and decades, and, and I understand try and live that value uh, as much as they can.
1: Okay, Tegan, how difficult was it to keep this a secret? I mean, I, I talked to a couple of the other organizers who said they, they were on pins and needles here, hoping this is going to actually come true.
7: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's something you want to be able to tell everyone. I think, so. (laughs) to be totally honest, I mean, we were so excited about the caliber of all the speakers, you know, Chief James Hobart, Chief David Knox, Janella Point, like these amazing people, Uh, Dr. Karen Price, who's a scientist, you know, on the Old Growth Technical Advisory Panel. And so on one hand, it was, you know, very exciting and hard, especially, you know, knowing how many people would be excited that Neil Young was there. And on the other hand, we were also excited for the other speakers and performers, that yeah. it wasn't a huge challenge.
1: Okay, Torrance, what is the message we heard? We heard Neil Young say, talking there about the sacred values of, of old growth trees. What is, can you expand on that? Like, what is the message you guys are trying to get out here?
2: Yeah, he put it he put it very succinctly. You know, these trees are so old. They've been here for so long and and they deserve Canada's respect and and B.C.'s respect. Uh, Old growth forests are are older than Canada is. And there's you know, it's it's not a radical argument anymore to to want to see them conserved. That's what this rally was all about. No one wants to see the end of the forest industry altogether. We want to see it done in a way that's sustainable. And the kind of call of the rally was the united we stand for old growth declaration, which as of Rally Day had 225 signatories from across BC representing not just environmental organizations, but labor groups, First Nations and First Nations organizations, uh, community groups, faith groups. It really shows the the kind of unity around this message, how popular it is. And it was about encouragement as as much as it was about protesting, right? The the BC NDP government, Premier David Eby himself, Have made some admirable promises on this issue, and uh, this was about showing the support uh, and encouraging them to keep them.
1: Okay, Teagan, what kind of impact do you think something like this has on public opinion, government policy? Like, we have seen very sort of famous celebrities weigh in on issues in Canada and British Columbia in the past. Like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio springs to mind. Jane Fonda's traveled to Canada and spoke out on a lot of a lot of issues here. When you get someone of this kind of, I guess, kind of star power, does it really make an impact? Like, do you think people say, oh, Neil Young was there, therefore I'm going to side with them and and oppose old growth logging?
7: Oh, I mean, I think it makes a huge impact. And like, to be really clear, old growth is so popular in British Columbia, and it's obviously a deeply complex issue. But we know that the vast majority of, of residents in British Columbia want to stop old growth logging. Um, they recognize the value of these forests. And so to have, you know, folks with this kind of star power come in and amplify that message is really powerful because a lot of people, you know, still don't realize the extent of old growth logging that continues to happen uh, in B.C. And so the reminder is also just that we're still a ways away from delivering on those promises, as Torrance mentioned, that the B.C. and BP government and Premier E.B. have made on old growth. <laughs> And so just that kind of awareness that they can bring and the ends, like Torrance was saying, the encouragement, really lifting up people's spirits. And that's what the rally was all about, reminding people that we're still in this together, that our movement's still growing strength and that we're here to fight for meaningful, lasting
5: change.
1: Okay, Torrance, last question for you. Uh, There's been a lot of pressure on the B.C. government on this file for many years now, and they have announced some deferrals of old-growth logging in some areas of the province, but we continue to see some logging take place. I'm not sure that Neil Young or, or anyone else would make government change dramatically, the direction they're going in here. Another thing that occurs to me is the interests of Indigenous First Nations. I mean, there's some First Nations involved with... Old growth logging in BC. <clears throat> I don't, I'm not sure what Neil Young would say to, like, First Nations leaders or Indigenous leaders who are involved in old growth logging. What, what what do you think he would say to them? He would say, "Well, you you have to stop logging anyway, even though you've this is your traditional territory." Is that what he would say? Yeah, I mean,
2: I think he would he would he would put the onus back on the governments of of uh, British Columbia and to a lesser extent Canada. The the economic paradigm that forces, you know, communities, Indigenous and non, to need to continue to log old growth wasn't designed by them. It was designed by the federal and provincial governments. And that's where the responsibility lays to get this right. Um, I think Neil Young would have shared a, a very similar message and it would have been echoed as it was at the rally by uh, leaders like Chief James Hobart of the Spuzzle Nation, Chief David Knox of the Kwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakwakw uh, uh, that that we do need to find better balance and the governments of British Columbia have created the the situation that that we're all in and they need to invest in making alternatives to old growth logging a better solution they need to invest in financing uh, and and I, and I think that's the message that we were all trying to get across there are solutions on the table and the government needs to do more to to make them a reality
1: okay Tegan last question do you hear now like was Neil young did he have a, a like an entourage with him there yesterday because uh, one of the, I was speaking to one couple of people down there noticed that he seemed to he seemed to have a camera crew with him is that was that true like I was just wondering if they're making if there's some documentary film going on that was following him with a camera. Do you know if that was the case
7: Not that we know of, but we're still you know collecting all of the footage from the rally and so we'll you know continue to share everything that we can with with folks in the public i think um really there were some incredible speeches and performances and together with Daryl and, and Neil's performance and speech, you know, I think we're going to have some incredible um, footage to look back on and remind us of this work as we continue to fight to protect all the forest in British Columbia.
1: Okay. Thank you to both of you for coming on. It certainly got a lot of attention here this weekend. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about police use of force now. And, of course, we have had many high-profile examples of police misconduct, excessive use of force. Anytime there's an arrest in public these days, you can bet that it will be filmed by someone with a cell phone. So there's a lot of scrutiny of police officers how they do their jobs here. Many police officers are investigated and sometimes charged When there's use of force, sometimes with assault and sometimes even more charges, serious charges. How are these charges approved? What happens if a police officer is just doing their job with a violent suspect or offender and then end up being charged with assault? I've got Ravi here standing by, a lawyer who's represented many police officers in these situations. Have a listen to this report here now. You're going to hear, hear about... RCMP officer Paul Middlestead here. Who, this is a prominent recent example of this. This report from Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur. Have a listen.
5: In July 2020, Middlestead escorted a prisoner to Sanich Peninsula Hospital
4: to receive treatment. According to the retired officer, the prisoner's behavior became increasingly erratic and violent during the ER stop, and he ended up spitting in Middlestead's face.
3: At that point, I took him in a controlled fashion to the ground from his
1: chair with his handcuffs and cuffed in the front.
4: Instead of charges coming against the prisoner, Jesse Carlson, Middlestad was stunned to learn he was the subject of an assault investigation.
1: Okay, this case ended up in court, and at trial, the judge uh, declined to admit some of the evidence and gave a very blunt judgment after two days of trial that there was insufficient evidence in the Crown's case against this police officer who was acquitted. In that case, let's discuss this now with my guest, Ravi Hira. Ravi's a lawyer in Vancouver, partner at Hira Rowan LLP, former Crown Counsel. Very pleased to welcome him back. Ravi, thank you for coming on today.
4: Good morning, Mike. Uh, thank you for having me. Mike, you uh, started off your uh, comments about uh, police officers and excessive use of force. I wish to make one thing very, very clear indeed. Sure. In British Columbia sure. and in Canada, We are very fortunate. Police officers are rarely, rarely convicted of excessive use of force. Further, in British Columbia, the uh, crown conviction rate, which normally is in the 98 percent plus for everybody else, is absolutely abysmal regarding police officers. As um, I'll go through the cases you will see that the crown conviction rate is worse. That is, the crown record vis-a-vis police officers is worse than that of the Canucks. Frankly, with a rate like that, the Canucks, uh, or a win-loss record like that, the Canucks got a new coat. Yet, with the crown, you have no accountability. So let me take you through the cases. Sure. First, um, in 2016, Pompeo. In 2018, Kucharin, a manslaughter case. Prior to that, McWilliams, the uh, shooting at uh, uh, the casino in uh, New Westminster. Buchanan, a dangerous driving case. Tate, another manslaughter in Nelson. Unruh, a prisoner case in uh, uh, the interior. Uh, Kempton, a dog and uh, dangerous driving and assault case in Vancouver mason a cell block encounter in nanaimo Maguire and sonos a prolific car thief mike a prolific car thief was caught by this uh, team what happened the crown stayed the charge against the prolific car thief one of the top 10 in british columbia he went on two months later to wreck more havoc in west vancouver and north vancouver and got three and a half years and they charged the police officers who were acquitted. Peter Zak in in, uh, Kelowna, Middlestead in Victoria. All of these, all of these 11 cases are Crown losses. In a situation where the Crown is not supposed to charge unless there is a substantial likelihood of conviction, um, how do they explain this record? And frankly, for the Attorney General to say, Hey, listen, I'm not involved in charge approval, is not correct. The reality is, the Attorney General is responsible for the conduct of the Crown. She has to explain why these losses keep mounting. We do not, in a parliamentary democracy, have a branch of government that is accountable to no one.
1: So, okay. okay. Okay, Ravi, let me ask you this. You just outlined a lot of cases where these cases against these police officers failed. You know, we just listened to the case of the RCMP officer acquitted on that assault charge. He said he was just doing his job. Offender became violent. He had to do what he had to do. Are you saying that when we see a lot of these cases fail in front of a judge that these are these are examples of police officers who should not have been charged from the very start? Like, I just wonder if there is maybe out of an an abundance of, of caution that Crown is more likely to charge a police officer in order to protect the public interest here to make sure a police officer is not using excessive force. But you think it should be the same standard for anybody else, though, right?
4: Well, you've raised two questions. One, okay. the charge approval standard is the same for all British Columbians. Right. You do not charge a police officer on a lower charge approval standard just because he or she is a police officer. Two, there is a, a continuing obligation upon the Crown to reassess the case all the time. These losses show either a failure to apply the charge approval standard, or, B, a failure to reassess. Whatever it is, British Columbians and police officers deserve accountability.
1: Okay, what happens to a police officer goes through this, uh, this process here? Like we heard from Paul Middlestead, the, the RCMP officer, who has started his career as a Mountie and then suddenly ends up on the wrong end of an assault charge. Can this like ruin a, an officer's career?
4: Well, one of the problems with uh, the process is the inordinate delay that occurs in each of these cases. Reports are given to crown council. They sit on the crown's desk for months, if not years, as we've seen. And while a police officer is under investigation, he or she is not entitled to a promotion, not entitled to a transfer, and often confined to desk duties. I.e., while they wait for years on end and eventually get acquitted, they are frozen and cannot continue in their career. This is wrong.
1: Okay, what about the uh, the role of uh, the role of independence here when it comes to investigating these these cases, Ravi? Like we have an independent investigations office here in British Columbia that looks into police police involved cases does that not give it some independence and some impartiality or no
4: well you can have independence but if the investigation doesn't reveal evidence or is otherwise flawed and charges are approved who cares about independence it's still wrong a police officer is being subject to a miscarriage of justice just because he or she is a police officer and the one loss record demonstrates that.
1: Yeah, what is the wrong, what, what is the one lost record? Like, what's the batting percentage there? Of how many cases the crown wins here?
4: Well, I just went through eleven of them. It's zero to eleven uh, over the course of uh, um, uh, seven years. Over the course of less than five years, it's zero to ten. It's worse than the Canucks.
1: Yeah, And uh, no, of course you know we have to have a robust system of oversight of police, there has to be a uh, very uh, comprehensive diligence when investigating these these charges. Like So obviously, we, we need transparency, and we need a strict system of accountability for police, right? I know you wouldn't argue against that.
4: Well, absolutely. Police officers that do wrong must be held accountable. If right. they've broken the criminal right. law, they must be prosecuted. However, prosecuting police officers because they're police officers based on flimsy evidence, as the one loss record shows, is wrong. Do
1: you think and last question last question for you Ravi. do you think that there is uh any kind of public misunderstanding about how how police officers go about applying force when they're required to do so? I know there is a continuum of force that police. Uh, use if they're dealing with a, a suspect who's resisting arrest, for example. I mean, it seems to me like every time there's a, an arrest on a, in public, it, it's being, it's being filmed. Uh, police are familiar with, you know, outrageous cases, everything from Rodney King to, to George Floyd. And if they see an, someone, a, a police officer arresting someone on the street, you know, do you think that maybe some people, they spring, it springs to mind immediately that it's misconduct or it's brutal or it's police brutality?
4: Well, There are two things here. One, in Canada, unlike uh, other parts of the world, we are very fortunate indeed. We have national standards. There's the RCMP-IMIM and the um, NUFF, which is used by other police services. Both of them deal with the use of force. Both of them are virtually identical, and the use of force is not something entered into lightly by the police. Two, which is the second part of your question. Police have to get a situation under control quickly. And using force quickly to get a situation under control often doesn't look pretty. However, if there are no injuries, and in many of these cases, there are no injuries. In Middlestead, there weren't. In Sonos and Maguire, there wasn't. What are we doing? Spending years and hundreds of thousands of dollars prosecuting police officers where nothing's happened and and i might add letting go of the criminal who is then allowed to go and commit more crimes
1: okay ravi thank you for your thoughts on it today i appreciate it a lot you're welcome okay okay we continue talking about police misconduct cases there. You heard the story of Paul Middlestead, who's an RCMP officer, was charged with assault. The case, he was acquitted in court, uh, believes that ruined his, his career as a police officer. Uh, you heard my conversation there with Ravi Hero, outlined a lot of similar cases. Check in with Doug Spencer now, former police officer, 30 years with the VPD. He now works to keep kids out of gangs. Doug, thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Mike hey, Doug. Do you think that the public has any misunderstanding about how police apply force because it seems like any time there's an arrest in public, it's being filmed, and it's it's not it's not pretty like Ravi Hira just described it's It's not pleasant or pretty to watch someone being arrested if they're resisting arrest. Your thoughts
6: yeah, you know people forget that when you're using uh, physically trying to take people into custody and stuff it's not an exact science, right? Yeah, You know, people train their whole lives to be black belts and all this stuff and proficient at judo and holding. And you're usually dealing with a drunk or a drugged up person who is doing whatever they can to get away from you or beat you up or whatever. So it's, again, not an exact science. They just had a, a Vancouver, young Vancouver guy, I know, Convicted and you you watch the the part of the video they show on Global, and you can actually see the guy the fighting five policemen can still not get the guy under control because he was a big guy, but they didn't show the part of the video where he actually had the policeman convicted in a headlock right they didn't they don't show that, so none of the defund the police the police are brutality people show the whole video because you know in the gang unit we dealt with lots of shootings and serious assaults at clubs and you have to watch the entirety of the video to even understand how it came
1: to be right how how does the we just got two minutes here doug how does the continuum the continuum of uh, use of force supposed to work like people may have heard of this phrase it's like if someone is resisting arrest you're supposed to use the minimum amount of force required to make someone comply. Is that correct?
6: Exactly. Sufficient uh. force to, and it, it, the way the force continuum works is pre- police presence. When they see you in uniform show up, normal people calm down. The situation is under control. Then it goes to verbal where you try and talk them out of fighting and cooperating and stuff and then it can escalate quite quickly to physical confrontation where you're trying to get handcuffs on them and you know i've tried to handcuff 110 year 110 pound females and it's impossible right so um it looks sure it looks bad but you know just the the video of this stuff is not sufficient to investigate and understand and the issue with the police is when they uh, answer to all their officers being assaultive and abusive and stuff they never actually talk about the case because it's before the courts where you have all the IIO and the OPCC they love it when those things go to the global news the little news clip that looks bad right now they've got a case they can run with
1: Okay, that's an interesting side of the story. We continue to follow. Doug, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. You're more than welcome, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.